You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped, first broadcast on the 11th of October 2015 on Monocle 24. Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. From our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong and Singapore, and right here at Midori House in London, this is Asia Pack Unwrapped, your unmissable weekly briefing from the world's most dynamic region. Coming up on the program, we'll shine a spotlight on film production in Thailand. We've had uh, directors, directors of photography, producers, writers who, when they're in town, come and show their films, which is great. Uh, That's a chance, again, for the local community to meet new people. Then we're in Phnom Penh, where a new exhibition is stoking curiosity in the country's long history, thanks to some rather mysterious burial jars. The fact that they took these jars and did not use them for storage, but rather broke off the necks, put the remains of their dead into them, and then set them on remote mountain ledges is one of the big mysteries. And later in the show, we'll examine the state of economic equality for entrepreneurs in Hong Kong. All that and a little bit more too, coming up on Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ, starting now. I'm Ben Ryland. Lots to come on today's show as ever. First up, though, grab yourself a bag of popcorn as we touch down in Bangkok. With its varied natural and man-made locations and relatively low labour costs, Thailand is a regional hotspot in Southeast Asia for film production. Yet the number of movies available at the multiplex cinemas inside Bangkok's vast mega-malls are quite limited. Catering for film aficionados in the Thai capital since 2013, the Fries Green Club aims to change the culture around film viewing in the city. We sent our Singapore bureau chief, Nolan Giles, to investigate the unique business. So we show films every night at 8 o'clock, every night except Monday. And uh, the films play on the screens on all floors. So some people prefer to sit around the bar and have a beer. Some people like to come up to the mezzanine floor and uh, watch here. Um, But I suppose what we have uh, at the core is our little screening room, which is probably the smallest cinema in Thailand. Might be the smallest cinema anywhere, I don't know, with nine seats. I'm taking a tour of the Freeze Green Club in Bangkok. This cosy night venue is the passion project of British expat Paul Spurrier, hidden away in a renovated shop house in a truly unique part of town. Well, Circumvit 22 is a soy that's constantly changing. It probably had the best reputation recently. It's a lot of massage parlours, some offering totally legitimate Thai massages and some maybe not, Uh, and a lot of uh, sort of small little beer bars. But I think it's a soy that is changing. And uh, and while I like the fact it's changing, in a way I hope it doesn't change too much. It's still a soy that has quite a lot of, you know, old Thailand character to it. I rather liked the soy, and we're tucked just off that soy. And uh, we rather like it here. At the Free Screen Club, screenings of cult local films, like Thai musical drama The Overture, as well as international classics and rarities, are enjoyed and analysed by Spurrier and his patrons, many of whom are involved in Thailand's rich film industry. 
Quite a lot of international films come to shoot in Thailand. I mean, there are four big films at the moment. There's, you know, a Steven Seagal film, a Jean-Claude Van Damme film, Pierce Brosnan was over recently. And there was, you know, no film club. There was nowhere for people to really come and meet each other. Um, that also combined with a general feeling that I had and a few other people I knew had that, you know, cinemas are just now increasingly showing, you know, Marvel comic films and Transformers 4. And I mean, we had a situation recently where the 14 screen Paragon, 12 of the screens were showing Transformers 4. And I started to miss the sort of repertory cinemas back in London where they would show weird old cult off the wall foreign art house, you know, the sort of films that you don't now see at the multiplexes. And so uh, it was really just, uh, you know, a fun experiment to see other people out there who think like me, who like to come and see something a bit off the wall. So you were saying before that there's, a, I guess, a local film scene, there's an international film scene, and, and the ambition of this place is to bring these people together. It'd be interesting to hear about perhaps some of the evenings that you have here and, and the sort of people that come along and, and what that mixture is like. Um, well, what's very nice is when you find that people who have met here and are then you know, started to work together and they say, oh, you know, he came along and helped me on my film. And that's really nice to, to hear that on some level that's working, that it's bringing people together who wouldn't have known about each other otherwise. We often, when international filmmakers or crew members come to Thailand, we try to sort of drag them in to show a film and talk about it. Um, so we've had uh, directors, directors of photography, producers, writers who, when they're in town, come and... Uh, and show their films, which is great. Uh, that's a chance, again, for the local community to meet new people and sort of expand uh, their knowledge of you know, what filmmaking is. Nolan Giles there exploring the Freese Green Club in Bangkok. You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. Now, over the past decade, Cambodia has seen quite a spike in tourism. Tourists are increasingly drawn to the spectacular temples of the Angkor Wat complex, the crowning achievement of the Khmer Empire that dominated the region a thousand years ago. Visitors might assume there was little else outside that culture. Even after the Khmer Empire went into decline in the late 14th century and Cambodia was at risk of being overtaken by its neighbours. But a new exhibition of mysterious burial jars shows that wasn't actually the case, and offers quite a tantalising glimpse into the customs of a highland people living in the remote Cardamom Mountains, as Robert Carmichael reports from Phnom Penh. My name is Dr Nancy Bevan. I'm a senior research fellow at the University of Otago Medical School in New Zealand. You don't sound like a New Zealander. No, I'm an immigrant (laughs) from the United States. (laughs) I'm talking to Bevan at her exhibition titled Living in the Shadow of Angkor. It's just opened at Phnom Penh's National Museum and showcases a decade of research in the rugged Cardamom Mountains of southern Cambodia. Bevan's team of Cambodian and foreign specialists worked at 11 sites where, between 1400 AD and 1650 AD, burial jars and wooden coffins were placed on cliff ledges. That two-century period followed the collapse of the once-dominant Khmer Empire, a time of extraordinary flux for Cambodia. Inside these jars were human bones and jewellery, funerary practices entirely at odds with the prevailing custom of cremation. 
The sites were so remote that the team rode motorbikes along jungle tracks just to access them and in some cases ferried in supplies by helicopter. There's several cabinets housing jars, jewellery, plates and at the end of the room is a mock-up of a cave. Tell us what we're looking at here. What we've done in this exhibit is try to give the general public a sense of the jar and coffin burial culture of the Cardamom Mountains. On one side of the hall, we have a series of posters highlighting findings from our work, such as the consistency of the burial ritual, certain cultural practices, such as uh, the removal of certain teeth to signal that these people were all of a similar tribe, if you will. And at the end of the hall, we have recreated what a jar burial ledge looks like so the public can appreciate these are not burials in the ground, but these marvelous 53-centimeter-high jars filled with human bones and hand-hewn wooden coffins from local trees that are simply set out on rock ledges, usually precariously <laughs> on cliff edges and such. Researchers believe the ancestors of one of Cambodia's minority groups were behind this unusual custom, and to this day, locals leave offerings at the sites. The Jar burial people certainly engaged in trade. Items recovered from a 15th century shipwreck found in Cambodian waters a decade ago precisely match what Bevan's team found high up in the Cardamom Mountains. Somehow, our people in the mountains had a trade connection to obtain these jars. The fact that they then took these jars and did not use them for storage, but rather broke off the necks, put the remains of their dead into them, and then set them on remote mountain ledges is one of the big mysteries. Where did this burial ritual originate from? as this is a wholly unknown ritual for the lowlands in that period. Similar practices existed among some highland people in northeastern Cambodia and Vietnam and on islands such as Borneo. So it's possible the Cardamom Mountains highland people were in touch with other minority groups. But with no written historical record and no evidence of settlements, there are more questions than answers. The information that we have from the burial rituals is very, very basic. We know what they valued, the copper rings, the simple glass beads. We know they thought that these simple storage jars were precious enough to them that they would have carried them from the lowlands and into the highlands and put them on treacherous rock ledges. We know that they had no influence from the Hindu, Buddhist, funerary practices of the time, which is mainly cremation. But the rest of their lives, exactly who they were, why they started this ritual, and why they ended it in about 1650 AD, those are things that we may never know. After documenting each site, Bevan's team left the jars, bones, pottery and beads as they found them. She's optimistic the site's remoteness and the reverence shown for them by local people mean they won't be looted. For its part, the exhibition shows there's more to Cambodia's history than the grandeur of the Khmer Empire, a parallel past that remains largely unknown. Meantime, the project, which was predominantly funded by New Zealand, is out of money and on hold. 
For now, the team is compiling a database of its findings for the Cambodian government, a solid foundation for future work on this enduring mystery. That was Monocle's contributor in Phnom Penh, Robert Carmichael. You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. There's so much more to Hong Kong than its sea of skyscrapers. And Monocle's new travel guide is here to help you discover a different and captivating side to this complex and ever-changing city. This city isn't one that will let go of its past easily. Hong Kong is marked by an eclectic confluence of archaic and futuristic, deliberate and accidental, all of which can make exploring the city a dizzying experience. From food to retail, art to architecture, Monocle Films takes you on a journey through the city to celebrate the publication of the Monocle Travel Guide to Hong Kong, premiering now in the film section of monocle.com. Now, anyone who's visited the Japanese capital will surely agree it's a city like no other. Many have tried to capture the essence of Tokyo, from Yasujiro Ozu to Sofia Coppola. Among the many elements that will linger in any visitor's mind, though, must be the sounds. Whether it's jingles at the train station or mere ambience on the busy city streets, Tokyo is forever a constant song all of its own. Fiona Wilson and Kenji Hall from Monocle's Tokyo Bureau attempted to capture some of that hum. When we were thinking about ideas for this week's program, I came up with this idea of the sound of my commute, my daily commute to work. You know, you're constantly bombarded in the city by jingles, by music, by sound. It's so interesting. When you arrive in Tokyo, I remember when I first arrived in Tokyo, one thing I noticed was it had very distinctive smells. But the other thing that you can't miss is the sound. There has its own kind of background sound. There's a sort of symphony going on of, of, as you know, Kenji mentioned, all these jingles. But it really gets into your brain. I think, for me, definitely the train jingles. That's a fascinating one where when you get on and off a train, each station has its own jingle. One, for instance, at Takata no Baba, which is close to where I live, they have the intro song for Astro Boy, the anime from the 1950s that was done by Osamu Tezuka, who is Japan's Walt Disney before Hayao Miyazaki came along. There's the jingle for Ebisu Station, which is an old Ebisu beer ad. There's even a company that specializes in coming up with jingles for train stations, a company called Switch that's based in Tokyo. And so you can actually make a business out of this sort of thing. Yeah, I think often you're not even thinking about these noises. It's funny, when you stop to think about it, you realize how many there are, and also just how distinctive they are. They go into your brain in some way. Um, You know, some people say they, they absolutely know the tunes for each station, I can't say that, although I do know all the tunes. It's funny, when we were playing them, uh, just we were just listening to them, weren't we? Uh, you know, they're all very, very familiar. They're kind of inside your head. You don't even think about it. I mean, actually, I think you could say that there is quite a lot of noise pollution in Tokyo. It's not so much people shouting or traffic. It's just this level of the music everywhere, instructions for everything. You buy a train ticket, the machine talks back to you, so does the ATM. And I find that I'm used to it now, but I think it's a bit of a surprise when you first come to Tokyo. I mean, one of my absolute favourites is the road crossing jingle. It's a classic. When I first arrived in Japan, I thought, how amazing. Even the road crossing sounds quite Japanese. It has something of uh, Japan to it. And that tune is actually called, it has a name, it's called Toriyansei. 
and it's an old children's song. The other very familiar tune would be Yuyake Koyake, which plays in this neighborhood at 5 p.m. Yuyake Koyake means twilight, and it's a decades-old test of the emergency public address system. It's also come to serve another purpose. Yeah, I mean, it functions very much for children in the neighborhood. They know when they hear that five o'clock jingle, it's time to go home. It's a very useful tool for parents. Either children playing on their own without their parents, they know they've got to head home, or parents who are trying to persuade their children to leave the park that it is really time to go home. And, you know, and it's funny, it's so much part of the sonic landscape, that sound, that five o'clock sound. And even in the office, we hear it and we think, oh, okay, five o'clock now. It, it's part of the rhythm of the day, isn't it? Now, one of the things I'm probably not so keen on are the, the retail jingles. There are certain shops in Tokyo that have very distinctive, very loud jingles. Well, let's out them right now. Big <laughs> camera would be one. Yeah, big camera. That's a <laughs> time for a rewrite there, but it's so classic now, I don't think they could change it. The moment you enter, you want to leave. <laughs> Don Quixote is another one. You know, that actually stops me going into the shop, but um, it certainly is distinctive and, and everybody knows it. And in Don Quixote, for anyone who doesn't know it, it's an extremely cheap shop selling uh, everything and anything, really, isn't it? And Big Camera is probably the biggest electronic shop in Tokyo, chain store, that is. Well, even Muji, you know, which is a very tasteful shop and it has suitably tasteful music. It's quite distinctive. It somehow fits the mood with the products. It's, it's very well chosen. I mean, I'm not sure I'd be playing it in my bedroom at home, but it, it definitely, you know, sets the tone, and I th- it works somehow there, doesn't it? Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief Fiona Wilson there, and our Asia editor at large Kenji Hall, capturing the sounds of the Japanese capital. To Hong Kong now, where a report recently published found that advancing women's equality will boost global economic growth by around $12 trillion. Many observers rank Hong Kong as the freest economy in the world, but that doesn't necessarily extend to societal or gender politics. Whether it's the dangling carrot of financial stimulus or just improving quality of life across the board, many groups around the world dedicate themselves to achieving gender balance. Monocle's Kurt Lin sat down with Fahan Faruqi from ANZ's International Business and Sue Mae Thompson, CEO of the Women Foundation, for a chat about their accelerator program for women entrepreneurs in Hong Kong. At the Women's Foundation, we love entrepreneurs. As a NGO that's trying to change society, we think that entrepreneurship is exciting because We believe that it's not fundamentally about starting a business. Entrepreneurship is a state of mind. It's not a job title. It's a state of mind of people who want to change things. But we also want more women to found businesses and grow companies, not least because you can do it at any age and regardless of your social background. It's vital to allowing women to become more economically self-reliant. Numerous studies show that when women are given economic resources, particularly in developing countries, their families and communities also benefit. So what are the research that your organization has done facing the issue of uh, women inequality? 
Looking at entrepreneurship, we conducted a study a couple of years ago on women and entrepreneurship in Hong Kong. And we found that women-owned businesses face particular gender-related challenges. First, the difficulties encountered by women in attracting capital beyond microcredit. So globally, only 5 to 10% of women-owned businesses have access to commercial bank loans. And women-owned businesses account for less than 5% of venture capital investment. Secondly, a lack of technological savvy means women entrepreneurs aren't leveraging the technology or internet to the extent that they can and should to scale their businesses. Thirdly, women often lack the same educational advantages, work experience as men, particularly the experience of managing budgets and teams. Fourthly, many women told us they don't think they're taken seriously by potential employees or partners or professional advisors, and they don't have the same business network of mentors and sponsors to turn to for help. And then lastly, women find it hard to balance family and childcare commitments with the demands of running a business. So some of these issues are, are not generic to women entrepreneurs. They apply to women in business, full stop. But you know, we felt that there's such an exciting group here of women starting businesses that we wanted to have a program that really focused on women entrepreneurs. And if you look at the participant profiles for our accelerator program, it's really amazing. We've got 28 fantastic, impressive women. We've got really smart techies. We've got passionate educators. We've got incredibly talented fashion and jewelry designers. We have evangelists who want to change the way that we eat and what we eat so that it's more sustainable and kinder to the environment. And we have social entrepreneurs who, through their ventures, are benefiting women in poverty and their families in developing countries. So it's such a diverse group of visionary women who are impatient to make a difference and have an impact. And that's why we launched the Accelerator program. And that's why TWF and ANZ are so excited about working closely with them. So how does ANZ involve in this program? So I think from, you know, from our standpoint, we're trying to address exactly the disadvantages and the holdbacks, if you like, that women have had in terms of setting up businesses in Hong Kong. Part of that is just learning how to present a business, how to prepare the strategy blueprint for the business, how to use the resources that are available and plentiful in Hong Kong around getting into the specific streams of areas that they're relevant to. So understanding what's the best way to market the product, what's the best way to retail the product, what's the best way to finance the business and grow that business. And for that, they need access to a network of people who can give them that mentorship, who can help devise those blueprints and those plans for them, who can help them hopefully introduce them to a community that they can access funding from as they begin to grow. And to some extent, it's to give them confidence. Because, you know, it's in Hong Kong, it's a broader issue, actually, where I think a lot of startups don't happen because people are afraid that they will fail. In the U.S., by contrast, startups happen and people fail, and that failure gives them a badge of honor to go and do more businesses. Here, people use it as a badge of disgrace and therefore are afraid to start. What we're trying to do is give women the confidence to go out and build businesses and help them succeed as much as possible, but also get them introduced to this network who can help finance them over and over again, even if sometimes they fail. The other is that giving them exposure, giving them exposure to this community, giving them exposure to a broader audience who, who know them and see them, I think will go a long way in terms of building the brand for them. That was Monocle's Kurt Lin there, chatting to Fahan Faruqi and Sumay Thompson. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. 
For most Australians, guns are something occasionally spotted in the holster of a police officer. Even before the horrific massacre at Port Arthur back in 1996, the nation's gun culture never really played a strong role in the mainstream. And the banning of semi-automatic weapons following that tragedy only cemented the feeling that firearms were not part of everyday Australian life. But the nation's lack of a gun culture is something that has occasionally fueled some slightly bizarre, heated debate amongst Americans. So when the National Rifle Association of America claimed that Australia's legislative changes following the 1996 massacre didn't work, some right-wing media were quick to jump on the issue. Fox News even went so far as to claim Australia was a nation without freedom. But for Australians today, there is no local gun debate, and it's easy to see why. The Port Arthur massacre left 35 people dead and a further 23 wounded. In the 18 years prior to 1996, there were 13 mass shootings in Australia. Now, nearly 20 years after changes to the law, there have been none. It's a fact that may have bypassed the debate in the US, but not Monocle's Sydney contributor Dan Illick. He spoke to Emma Nelson and Dominic Reynolds on Tuesday's edition of the Monocle Daily. Fox and Friends got on the blower and they decided that they would, you know, uh, compare the US gun situation with Australia's situation. And they were just running through the various arguments. And when they got to Australia, they said, well, you know, let's discount Australia because they don't have a Bill of Rights and they, they have all these laws in place, including laws that you can get thrown into jail if you speak out of turn. That is uh, technically true in, in some cases. But, you know, when you speak out of turn, what that means is inciting race rights. So in Australia, it's actually illegal to have so much speech to encourage a bunch of other people to participate in some kind of violent right. So really, it's true, but only in that specific case. Which uh, slightly waters down the you can get put in prison for speaking out of turn. Um, How did the argument get to Australian free speech? I mean, there was obviously Australia has uh, stricter gun laws than the United States, not difficult. But to what degree was the Australian gun law regulations seen as something that needed to be brought into a debate, which is such an American thing? It kind of happened in the 80s and 90s, we used to have mass murders as well you know it, it's not a it's not an uncommon thing the kind of gun laws that came in around 1996 after the port arthur massacre which was the the biggest massacre in the world to date uh, 35 people died and 25 were injured when that event happened the prime minister at the time negotiated with all the premiers to pass strict gun laws to make sure that semi-automatic weapons were banned and so when that happened we kind of saw a drop-off entirely of mass murders. We haven't seen any in Australia since 1996, which is quite remarkable. That's not to say there isn't gun culture in Australia and there isn't guns in Australia. We still have gun violence, particularly in Western Sydney. uh, There is plenty of gun violence that happens. But this kind of mass murder on this scale dropped right off, probably due to the weapon that has been used, which is the semi-automatic, fast-paced weapons. I wonder that given Australia's uh, history of, of having a problem and then not having a problem after action was taken, do Australians then look at, you know, those horrible tragedies of which we've seen, I think, 142 since Sandy Hook in, in America, when they come on cable news stations, do you think Australians view that whole argument slightly differently, given that they had a problem and now don't really have the same sort of problem anymore? I think so, and I think as a nation we kind of take that moment at Port Arthur and kind of 
use that as something that we hold up to and go, well, this happened and then uh, the Prime Minister came through and made these sweeping changes and therefore this doesn't happen anymore. In many respects, Port Arthur was like our September 11. It, it, it struck so large in the Australian psyche for so many years after that, Australia was quite wounded. And, you know, 10 years after, it still kind of held that same significance. But 20 years on today, many people have distant memories of that event. And so it's kind of stuck in the past because we've come so far and we haven't had an event like that since that we don't know what it is to feel that pain on such a large scale again. Like, it's quite remarkable. That was Emma Nelson and Dominic Reynolds there chatting to Australian journalist Dan Illich. And that brings us to the end of Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ, our final episode for 2015. The show was produced by our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong and Singapore and by me, Ben Rylan, here at Maduri House in London. Nina Norik was our editor and Kurt Lin was our researcher. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com or tune in via iTunes, SoundCloud or the Monocle app. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24 in association with ANZ. I'm Ben Rylan. Thanks for listening.